0: Daniel, chapter 8 this morning. Uh, You heard the first chapter, first half of chapter 8 read to you uh, just a few moments ago by Marie Cleveland. So you know what we're getting into. It's another vision. We've got more beasts with more horns and probably more of you wondering, what on earth is going on here? That was my reaction when I read it. But if you feel that way, if if that's how you're feeling this morning, you're in good company. You see, in the second half of this chapter, an angel shows up who actually gives Daniel a pretty good interpretation of what he saw. And even after all that, Daniel still says this. He says, I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled for the vision, and I didn't understand it. So... (laughs) So we're all in this together. But we're going to try and understand this vision today uh, at least a little more clearly. Uh, And to do that, we're going to actually uh, utilize some of the tips that Pastor Aaron gave us uh, last week. Uh, If you remember, Pastor Aaron shared with us four helpful tips for reading apocalyptic literature. Symbolic language, shortened perspective, historic times coloring, and Jesus being central. We're going to take each of these one at a time and apply them to chapter 8. And by doing so, I believe that you will see, uh, one, more clearly what this vision is about and what it means, and two, you'll see God's power and sovereignty played out in history even as we look to Him today to find our strength in the midst of our own beasts. So, here we go. The first thing I'd like to do is get us situated in our historical context. That's the third tip on the screen, tip number three, called historic times coloring. Uh, Before we try and understand anything else, we've got to understand the historical context that the author is writing in. Thankfully, in chapter 8, Daniel gives us this information right up front. In verse 1, he said, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me. Now, remember, King Belshazzar is the king who saw that floating hand back in chapter 5. So, this vision is taking place after the time of King Nebuchadnezzar, but before the time that Babylon has fallen to the the Medo-Persian Empire. So, it's about 550 BC. King Belshazzar hasn't seen the writing on the wall yet, but King Cyrus… And the Persian Empire, they're already out there gaining ground in the Middle East. And pretty soon, they're going to overtake and absorb the Median Empire. And not long after that, they'll be knocking on the door of Babylon. So 550 BC, that's when we are. That's when this vision occurs. And already, we see some major players emerging in the historical context. But the location gives us more direction. In the vision, Daniel is standing in Susa, the citadel. Susa would become the capital city of the Medo-Persian Empire, which is about 150 miles east of Babylon. So That's where Daniel is when he sees the first beast. All right, now that we got our historical footing somewhat, let's jump into some of the symbolic language of chapter 8. The first thing that Daniel sees is a ram with two horns standing on the bank of a canal. Now, in apocalyptic literature, the horns of an animal represent power because it's what the animal uses to defend itself and to attack. It's its weapon. And more often than not, the the power it's alluding to is the power of kings and of kingdoms. So this particular ram had two horns. And both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. Now, thankfully, we don't have to guess at who these horns are referring to because that angel actually tells us who it's referring to. In verse 20, it says, As for the rams that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of the Medes and the Persians. Having already established our historical context, this imagery maybe makes some sense, right? Cyrus, the king of Persia, was gaining power, and soon he would conquer the Medes. His power, Cyrus's power, was greater, and he had come after the Medes, who had been in the area for some time. So Cyrus and the Persian Empire is that second horn, the one that has grown beyond the horn. Uh, uh, that was there first all right that's the first beast the second beast naturally follows the same logic Uh, the text says as i was considering behold a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes all right now here's your quiz if if there's another horn on this goat what is that horn referring to a king, right? A king or a kingdom. So this goat has one conspicuous horn uh, in its front. And again, the angel tells us who this is. Uh, the goat is Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. Uh, we're also told that the, the goat came from the west and was moving so quickly that it barely touched the ground. Now, the speed of this king and its conquest has led a lot of historians to, uh, to, to believe that this is none other than Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great became king of Greece when he was only 20 years old. And within 10 years, he expanded the kingdom of Greece into one of the largest empires in the world. Now, This included the takeover of the Medo-Persian Empire in 333 BC when Alexander defeated the, uh, the Persian king, Darius Third, Or, as we saw in the vision, when the goat struck the ram and broke his two horns. But we're also told in verse 8 that this conspicuous horn itself is broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns. And sure enough, when Alexander died, his empire split into four. And was ruled by four of his generals. I don't know if you can see those names on the screen. His four generals were Cassander, uh, Ptolemy, uh, Lysimachus, and Seleucid. Now, don't worry about the names for now. We don't, we're not worried about them. One of those names will come up in a little bit. <laughs> Interestingly, Alexander the Great died in Babylon in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar, of all places, probably unaware that a man some 200 years earlier had prophesied about him. All right, finally, the vision finishes with its honestly terrifying close. Uh, we have another horn in verse 9 that grows exceedingly great toward the glorious land. It challenges even the host of heaven, throwing some of them down and trampling on them, and then throwing truth to the ground. But this reign of terror is limited. It's limited to 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Again, we have another horn, which means another king. The heavenly language, the stars and the host, that refer to the things that are above, right? So God's stuff. So this last king is going to oppose God and God's people. And the terrifying part in the vision is that the king will win for a time, right? That number, 2,300 evenings and mornings, it's a little over six years. But remember, numbers are symbolic, right? This number is symbolic. In Scripture, the number seven is a number that denotes completeness. So God created the world in seven days. Seven is a number of completeness, which means that the king's reign will not be complete. It's less than seven. It will not endure. It will not uh, last. It will be cut short. Okay, I wrote this in to my script here. Let's all take a big breath. All right, good. 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 The first hard part's over. There's only one more hard part. That was a lot. That was a lot. So let's actually just um, uh, take a second here. We're going to hone in on this, this final horn in King uh, before we hear from the King of Kings. But let's just recap s- some of this symbolic language first. Okay? So we had uh, four things we had uh, horns, which represent kings or kingdoms, we had heavenly language, so the stars, uh, which represent the saints. Uh, god's elect people in the glorious land, which is referring to Israel. We had earthly language, uh, so the beasts of the earth. These are related to earthly kingdoms. And lastly, we had uh, numbers, which carry uh, symbolic uh, value. And in this one, we're really just concerned with the number seven. All right. Now we're going to hit tip number two that Pastor Aaron shared. This one is called shortened perspective. Uh, this describes how visions can refer to the immediate future, uh, the distant future, and the very distant future, all at the same time. And this vision uh, covers all three of those horizons. First is the immediate future. Uh, Daniel had this vision in the third year of Belshazzar's reign. As we mentioned earlier, uh, Daniel was alive for that, and he would, he would come to see Uh, the fall of Babylon. So within the next 15 years, Daniel is going to personally experience the power of this ram that's bucking and charging uh, southward and westward and northward. The Medo-Persian Empire will continue to gain ground and eventually capture Babylon. Although Daniel would not live to see it, in the not-so-distant future, uh, Alexander the Great... In Greece, that that goat, that speedy goat, would come and overtake the Medo-Persians. As we heard, Alexander would die and be replaced by four other horns, those four generals. And then out of one of them would come a little horn that grew towards the glorious land. And it was him that would bring about that abomination to God's sanctuary and to his people. That horn would be a king by the name of Antiochus IV. Uh, Antiochus IV was a uh, Seleucid king, so he came from that fourth line of Alexander's general, Seleucus. And he took the reign in 175 B.C. And Antiochus IV ruled like a madman. In fact, they actually called him that. Uh, They called him Epimenes, which means madman, because Antiochus called himself Epiphanes which means God manifest. Antiochus IV, in all of his power, he thought he was like a god. And he actually encouraged the people whom he ruled to worship him as the Canaanite god, Baal. While some Jews gave in and followed along with everyone else, uh, there were others who resisted, uh, those who were unwilling to, to break the first commandment who were unwilling to worship anything or anyone apart from Yahweh. But when those Jews refused, Antiochus retaliated in a fearsome wrath. He invaded Jerusalem and desecrated the temple. He entered the holy place and took the golden altar where the high priest would pray and stole other vessels from the temple. He banned the reading of the Torah that is, the the Jewish Bible, and he burned every copy he could get his hands on. He forbade Sabbath observance and canceled all the Jewish festivals. He even murdered the children who were circumcised along with their mothers. And as Daniel had predicted in this vision, he stopped the daily sacrifice and instead had pagan sacrifices done on the altar Now, this frenzied anti-God madness, it reached its climax in December 25th, 167 B.C. In a final act of supreme and and steadied blasphemy, Antiochus had the Jerusalem temple rededicated to the Greek god Zeus. For the Jews, this was one abomination upon another abomination— And it all came to be known as the abomination of desolation. And it was this act that spurred on what is called the Maccabean Revolt, where some devout Jews formed a resistance group that fought against Antiochus in this Seleucid occupation. And by 164 BC, three years, three years after the abomination of desolation, the Maccabeans had recaptured. All of Jerusalem, except for Antiochus himself. And they performed a ceremony, uh, rededicating their temple to Yahweh. And that festival is still celebrated today. It's called Hanukkah. Hanukkah, which means dedication. That same year, 164 BC, Antiochus IV died. Unexpectedly, he was killed by no human hand. That was the first horizon. The second horizon comes shortly after the time of Jesus. Uh, Jesus himself alluded to it in our gospel reading from Matthew uh, when he said, uh, When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, right? Standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Of the first horizon, had already occurred in Antiochus. But Jesus is saying that another king would come along who would desecrate the temple again, that the same kind of destruction would happen again. And sure enough, in 70 A.D., the Roman army led by the future emperor Titus besieged the city of Jerusalem which culminated in the burning and destruction of the temple. But there's still one more horizon, the end. As the angel said to Daniel concerning this vision, it refers to the appointed time of the end. This is the third and final horizon. Jesus himself speaks of the abomination of desolation immediately after, the disciples ask him, what will be the sign of the end and the sign of your coming? The final horizon is the end times. It is the last days. It is the time of the return of Jesus. But instead of plunging deep into end times, prophecy, and paranoia, we're going to stop. We're going to stop right here. Because it's at this point when we've already reached the voice that we long to hear. And it was that fourth and final and and most fundamental point that Pastor Aaron shared with us for reading Scripture that we must follow, Uh, the point that is Jesus is central. Jesus is the point. Jesus is the one to whom all Scriptures point to and from whom we take all our direction. Long ago, at many times and in various ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. There are those who want to discern specifically when the last times will come, and and what events will lead exactly to the end times. But Jesus tells us just a couple verses later in Matthew that concerning that day, no one knows the day or the hour. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son. Only the Father knows. We don't need to know when that day will come. We need only to trust to trust the one who has already overcome all of the beasts of the earth. For God has continually shown His faithfulness to His people and has shown His power over the beasts of the earth. He limited the reign of Antiochus IV, rescuing the Jews from that madman, just like He had rescued them from so many others before Him. And when Jesus walked the earth. He too faced the beasts of this earth, the Roman Empire, and the fatal intentions of the Pharisees. And when he faced them, truth was thrown to the ground again. The truth, the way, the life, Jesus. But once again, the powers of evil that led to Jesus' death, they were limited, this time to three evenings and two mornings, because on the third day, truth rose from the dead. God reviving Jesus, God showing his faithfulness and rescuing those who were faithful unto him like he always does. But it wasn't just the earthly beasts who were vanquished this time, but Satan himself. Satan, the beast who is the beast behind all beasts, he has been destroyed. He has been struck down. His power is limited, and and it no longer holds sway over you because you have been rescued and secured by the prince of princes, by Jesus himself. And it is for your sake and for the sake of the elect, the saints, the stars, those who belong to Jesus, it's for your sake that the days of Satan's power have been cut short. His days are numbered, but yours are eternal. Everlasting life has been given and granted unto you by the blood of the Lamb and by His powerful Word, which no beast can ever withstand. It's in His voice, the voice of Jesus, that we trust. And it's in His name, uh, the name of Jesus, that we live. Amen.